Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are closing out our series on the 10 words. Here, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts will discuss the 10th word, thou shalt not covet. We do want to make you aware of a new video that we just put up on our YouTube channel. It's a recording of a chant of Psalm 46 that our junior fellows sang during our recent Trinity term of our junior fellows program. I'll put that down there in the show notes for you, and we hope you enjoy it. We really want to thank you for listening. We hope that you're encouraged by this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the 10th word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes is also here listening in and uh, keeping all the technology on track. We have been going through the 10 words, and particularly looking at the 10 words as they're given in Exodus 20. I've said it almost in almost every episode, and since this is the last episode of this series, I'll say it again, that the 10 words are called the 10 words. We're using that terminology because that's the terminology of the Pentateuch itself. That's what the Bible calls this set of commandments, this set of words. And it's also a good reminder to us that this text includes not only commandments, but also other sorts of claims, um, statements about God's character and his actions on Israel's behalf. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It includes threats about God's jealousy toward those who worship through images. There are promises attached, for example, to the fifth commandment, long life in the land that Yahweh gives to Israel uh, if they keep that commandment. The 10 words use that terminology in order to remind us that God isn't just giving a series of, a series of rules detached from any kind of historical or theological context, but they're given within the context of the Exodus, and they're given by a God who's delivered Israel from Egypt and a God who promises and threatens and is active in responding to the way his people respond to his word. We have gotten to the 10th word. Uh, that'll be the focus of attention today. Uh, this is a command concerning coveting. This is one of the controversial, one of the controverted commandments in, uh, in the 10 words. Way back at the beginning of the series, we talked about the ordering or the numbering of the 10 words. Uh, and we went with the standard reformed numbering, which is also the numbering that the Orthodox Church uses, uh, which divides between the commandment uh, against idolatry, thou shalt have no other gods before me, that's number one, and the commandment, thou shalt not make for yourself an image or any likeness of anything, that's commandment number two. So those are two separate commandments, and that means that the coveting commandment is a single commandment. Lutherans and Roman Catholics combine the commandment against idolatry and the commandment against images, and then to make it come out as ten words, uh, they divide the command against coveting. And there is there is some uh, literary, literary basis for that. You can see where that would come from just on the, on the way that the tenth word is structured, what we're calling the tenth word is structured. Uh, the verb, after all, is doubled. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. You'd think that it could just list the rest of the things that are not to be coveted after that, but it repeats the verb. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, his female servant, and so on. So there are two different imperatives, negative imperatives, within the tenth word. In Exodus 20, those two verbs are the same verb in the Hebrew, 
But when you get to Deuteronomy 5, and the commandment is repeated, you have two different verbs. One of them is the same as the one here in Exodus 20, but then you have another synonymous verb used in Deuteronomy 5. So again, uh, just in terms of grammar, it's, there's some basis for thinking that these are distinct commands. It's through comparing the version in Exodus 20 and the version in Deuteronomy 5, that's what leads me to conclude that it's unlikely that these are two different words. It's not just that you have the, the verbs, uh, the, a new verb is introduced in Deuteronomy 5, but you actually have the order of things, uh, the things that are not to be coveted, uh, is shifted between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. So Exodus 20 starts, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, and then thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to thy neighbor. So it puts the house first, and then a second set of things not to be coveted includes the wife, servants, animals, and anything else that he owns. When you get to Deuteronomy 5, the position of the house and the wife are switched. And so Deuteronomy 5 begins, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and then thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Uh, and I think it also introduces, if I'm not mistaken, it introduces field in Deuteronomy 5. So there's an, an additional item that's listed that uh, is not to be coveted. Yeah, Deuteronomy 5, 21, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That's the same verb in Exodus 20, covet. And then thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, his field, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so the, the wife is brought out and there's a separate, separate imperative about the wife and then a list of other things that includes the house and the members of the house. Uh, just to finish the thought I was, uh, the argument I was going to make, uh, the fact that there's that switch in the position of the house and the wife, to me, suggests that you're not, these are not two separate commandments. It would be odd uh, if between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, we didn't just have a reshuffling and a rewording of the 10th word, but we actually had a, the 9th and 10th word would shift places. That's actually what would be happening if you take the Lutheran or the Catholic version the ninth and the tenth words switch places between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. That seems unlikely to me, and I think it's more likely that this is to be understood as a single commandment. But it does raise the question, which I'll uh, pose to you, Alistair, and see what your thoughts are. But it raises the question of what, um, why we would have that shift. Why is the neighbor's house singled out as the first uh, in the first imperative in Exodus 20? Uh, but then the wife is singled out in Deuteronomy 5. It could suggest a greater um, um, prominence for the wife. The wife is no longer considered so much as part of the house, but as distinct from the house and over it with her husband. Um, that's one possibility. Right. Yeah, and that's, um, I think, Alistair, you and I both have heard Jim Jordan talk about a uh, pattern that you find in the Pentateuch, actually all the way through the Old Testament, and I think into the New Testament, a pattern where you have a double form of the covenant, a double form of God's relation to his people. There's a, there's a uh, bridegroom form, as it were, an Adamic form, and then there's a bridal form, and there's a shift in the terms of, the, there's a shift in the order, there's a shift in the terms of the covenant, and women come to more prominence. So you, you have that in the way that the ten words are ordered, in between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, but you also have it in other 
it's reflected in other ways in uh, within the Pentateuch. Uh, Jim has pointed out the difference between the census at the beginning of the book of Numbers and the census at the end of the book of Numbers. And uh, there's a prominence given to wives and mothers in the second census that's not there in the first. The end of Numbers highlights the daughters of Zelophehad. Uh, they appear in a couple of different episodes, and they're, they're women who are inheriting land. Uh, that's that's not in view at the beginning of the book, but uh, by the time you get to the second part of the book, after you've gone through this kind of death and glorification of Israel, the first Israel dies in the wilderness, the second Israel is enumerated at the end of ex- at the end of Numbers, and in that second form, the, it's the bridal form that where the, where women take a higher profile. Uh, I think there's argued in my Revelation commentary there's a kind of similar movement in. In Revelation, or if you look, if you look at John and Revelation, general together, uh, you have a, the death and resurrection of the bridegroom, Jesus, but no bride, and then Revelation is the about the death and resurrection, the death and glorification of the bride. So the Johannine gospel comes in these two forms: the bridegroom form and the bridal form. The tenth commandment is also distinct from the other commandments in the way that it focuses upon an internal state. When we think about the other commandments, it would seem that most of them could be kept merely in external action. But yet, the Tenth Commandment pushes things closer to the very realm of desire itself. And that focus is something that Paul highlights in Romans chapter 7, when he said he wouldn't have known what coveting was had the law not said, um, you shall not covet. And it's through that that sin gets its fullest purchase upon him, that he realizes that this is the character of sin. Sin is disclosed by virtue of the commandment and comes to life and he dies. The significance of that commandment then relates to all the other commandments. Every single one of those commandments can be traced back to the inner desires of the heart. Um, This is something that is highlighted in James as well. You desire and do not have, so you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. The desiring and the coveting in that case is the root from which the external sins um, spring. The coveting can occur in the case of idolatry as well, that the coveting of other gods, the desiring or... um, lusting after other gods other than the Lord. Um, And the challenge of sin at the very root in the heart and the realm of desire is then something that helps us to interpret the law in a way that helps us to see what Christ declares concerning the law in the um, Sermon on the Mount. The presence of the principles by which the Um, fruit of law-breaking arises within the very heart itself, the realm of desire. Of course, that's a part of what Jesus is highlighting in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think it's the only thing he's doing. It's not just a matter of internalizing the law, because he he gives commandments concerning our conduct, our behavior, as well as our desires and and, uh, our hearts. But that's part of what he's highlighting, is that there's a certain kind of law-keeping, as you said, that focuses just on conformity and external behavior that doesn't really get at the doesn't get at the heart of the matter uh, to just to press that in another direction then I think behind this is a kind of is an anthropological point I think it'd be too strong to say that the Bible makes talks about human beings as exclusively desiring beings 
uh, that'd probably be an overstatement. But the Bible does stress that uh, desire is uh, the kind of the moving impulse of human beings, that, that we are moved and driven by nephesh, the Hebrew word for soul. That's what, that's what makes us animate and moving beings. Not just in the physical sense that it moves us physically, but it, it moves us in the sense that we, we aim for certain ends and, we, and, that, and it's the, the nephesh that impels us to pursue certain ends. And the soul is a seat of desire. The Bible talks about, especially the Old Testament talks about the soul desiring food. And so there's a, a hunger and a desire for food that impels us to seek satisfaction for that desire. Sexual desire is sometimes located in the soul in the Bible. And so our, our soul impels us to certain kinds of sexual satisfactions. And not just, it's not just, the soul isn't just uh, the seat of those kind of you could reduce those to just material desires. I don't think that's accurate, but you could say that those are just material or physical desires. There's, I think there's more to it than that. But even if you say that, the soul is still the power, uh, the motivational power, or the uh, the thing that impels us with desire for God. So my soul, my soul yearns for the living God. That's the that's the language of the Psalms. So it's because desires are so much uh, at the heart of who we are. Uh, that's why the uh, it's one of the reasons why the this tenth word it has why God does get at this this depth of our psychology, this depth of our person, because if our desires aren't being governed, if our desires aren't aren't uh, submitted to God, then uh, our actions are also going to be distorted and are going to be rebellious. Something we've often commented upon at Theopolis is the movement from priest to king to prophet and from law to wisdom to prophecy. And the movement from law to wisdom is one that is provided for in part within the law itself. The law is helping us to meditate upon God's word and to understand the logic by which certain laws operate. We've discussed that in the context of this commandment in seeing how sin can be traced back to desire itself. So the desire for one's neighbor's wife is something that is connected to the seventh commandment of not committing adultery. And if you're going to keep that seventh commandment, you will need to keep it that one step back in the realm of desire itself. And so recognizing the logic of sin, how we deal with the psychology of sin and its development. And the movement into wisdom is, among other things, an understanding of the growth of sin, the shape of sin, the way that sin operates, its dynamics, its um, perverse logic. I've been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks and reflecting upon the way that wisdom brings in the temporal dimension a lot more. Wisdom helps us to see what happens over time as you give yourself to a particular sin, where these things lead, and the importance of tracing things back to the seeds that are sown, to the paths that are chosen, to the company that is kept. All these sorts of things that are perceived by wisdom as it moves through time and sees the effects of keeping the law and not keeping the law. So whereas the commandment can say, shall not commit adultery, the book of Proverbs will flesh out what adultery looks like, what it leads to, how it finds its incipients, and at each stage of the path, it helps you to understand the shape of that sin in a way that the command itself um, 
does not immediately give you does not give you that to the same degree but it does give you the means by which to think about it more deeply than simply the bare command and as you look at the rest of the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus the books of Deuteronomy and Exodus the larger narrative surroundings there are a great deal of insights that you can glean commented at various points upon the way that the Ten Commandments as they're repeated in Deuteronomy are expounded upon in the chapters that follow and perhaps this is a good example of how the getting back to the root of the issues in the heart and the um, command against coveting can be it's a great example of how the expounding that we find within the book of Deuteronomy sheds light upon the deeper logic of keeping God's commandments because one of the at the very heart of that section that's committed to expounding that commandment is the concern for offering one's first fruits and tithe tithes giving thanks to the lord with all of your heart and household celebrating in his presence inviting in those who do not have and giving generously and that being seen not just as um, the negative of do not covet but this is the alternative practice of training your heart that will lead to the avoidance of the sin from which other sins arise yeah a, a lot of great points there let me let me respond to several of them the last one in particular uh, to start with yeah the, i think that's the uh, it's it's gratitude that's the virtuous alternative the virtuous replacement it's the thing we put on when we put off covetousness and envy uh, and jealousy we put on gratitude and acknowledge that what we have is what God has given, and we are we rejoice in that. So, and practices of gratitude to what you're talking about in Deuteronomy—that's the the ritual uh, alternative that shapes a heart of gratitude to God. Uh, I also wanted to just point to James one. You're talking about the origins of sin um, back in the desires, and that's exactly what James says. Uh, he said that no one should say, "I'm tempted by God," and then he explains. Each one is tempted when he's carried away by and enticed by his own lust. The word lust there just is desire. Uh, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So there's a kind of a birth cycle, life cycle of, or death cycle of sin. But it comes out of our desires being enticed by a temptation. Which I, th I think the other point I wanted to highlight from what you said, Alistair, is the uh, kind of directionality of desire of, and I think this gets at some of the pathologies of contemporary uh, desire, how desire is conceived in, in the culture. Desire is just treated as an instinctive, and because it's instinctive, it's, it's just good. I mean, there's a kind of implied radical Pelagianism. If we desire it, it must be good, or we choose to desire things and therefore, because it's something that we have chosen and consent to, uh, it's therefore good. But desires have a have a trajectory. Desire has a telos. If I'm if I'm if I desire food, and you know, you give me a you give me a, an award for excellence, and I'm really hungry. That doesn't satisfy the desire. It's not desires have particular have a particular telos have a particular end in view. And if you if you think of desire as just a, a desire that's uh, without telos, it's not directed at anything, or or put it another way, if you think of desire uh, detached from any notion of what is or should be desirable, then it's 
desire without telos is desire without end. And I mean end there in, in both senses. It's desire without any, without any goal. But it also means that our desires are constantly churning and can never be satisfied because they aren't desires for anything. So because we lack any notion of what is actually valuable and what is actually desirable, what is objectively good for us to desire, the fact that we desire itself is, is itself a good. Uh, I think that, that creates all these pathologies of endless perpetual desire, dissatisfaction. And uh, go back to my original point, then uh, it seems like the, the practices you mentioned from the law that have to do with giving a first fruits, offering to God in thankfulness, those are the practices that uh, will give us it's, it's not so much a matter of checking desire, it's a matter, matter of shaping desires to the proper ends. Because we are desiring beings, we don't want to go the, the kind of pop stoic way of just suppressing desire. That's not what the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us the goal of desiring the right things, ultimately desiring God. Um, and uh, then, then our desires will be directed and will be properly shaped and controlled, not because we're suppressing them, but because they, they are aiming at the correct ends. And there I think it comes into focus um, why the great commands are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. If we're just thinking about the commandments in abstraction from the 10th commandment, we might think just not to do wrong to God or to your neighbor. But the 10th commandment brings in that realm of desire and the realm of love and rightly ordering your heart towards your neighbor. And at that point, we see that it is fulfilled in love. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.